this special episode of Disrupt, a podcast of the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. Today on the podcast, we will be discussing a topic of interest to nearly every person in the world, the COVID-19 vaccine. Specifically, we will spend time discussing the ethical implications of COVID-19 vaccination with experts in the fields of infectious diseases and ethics. Welcome back to the podcast. I am Justin Cole, Director of the Center for Pharmacy Innovation at Cedarville University. I'm pleased to introduce you to a number of guests with me on the podcast who will help us think through the importance of ethics and its application to COVID-19 vaccines. Our first guest, Rachel Voltoff, is a current pharmacy student in Cedarville University Doctor of Pharmacy program. Rachel completed her Bachelor's of Sciences in Pharmaceutical Science at Cedarville, along with a minor in bioethics. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thanks, Dr. Cole. Glad to be here. Our second guest is Dr. Zach Jenkins, who is Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice in the School of Pharmacy. He also serves as an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist in the Dayton area and has done well over 100 media interviews during the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks for being a part of the podcast, Dr. Jenkins. Thanks for having me. Our last guest is Dr. Dennis Sullivan. Dr. Sullivan is Professor Emeritus of Pharmacy Practice at Cedarville University. Dr. Sullivan obtained his MD from Case Western Reserve School of Medicine. He has served as a surgeon in a number of countries around the world and also holds a master's degree in bioethics from Trinity University. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Dr. Sullivan. And thank you for having me as well, Dr. Cole. Great. So first, I want to turn to Dr. Jenkins. Dr. Jenkins, can you tell us a little bit more about the two vaccine candidates that are first to come to the FDA for potential use? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, really, there are a number of front runners that were identified during Operation Warp Speed um, when that was first put in, into play. And the two ones that have really come to the forefront of the discussion right now are the vaccines from Moderna and from Pfizer. Um, today, Pfizer's data actually just dropped and the, the preliminary data from the FDA regarding its safety and efficacy. And Moderna is about a week behind with its data. Um, mm -hmm. We're expecting this Thursday the FDA to sit down and actually grant or potentially grant a full approval for emergency use of the Pfizer vaccine. Now, both of these vaccines are using a new vaccination technology um, called messenger RNA. And really what these two things do is they take a piece of genetic data from the virus, a piece of the RNA that codes for a specific protein. And that protein, um, they, they then uh, will stimulate the production of in a host cells and that will trigger an immune response. So this is a new technology we've never used before in vaccines. All right. So thanks for that information. So I guess a follow-up question would be with that new messenger RNA platform of the first vaccine candidates, is there the potential that this vaccine is a subtle form of gene editing? You know, I've had that question quite a bit over the past several weeks. When it comes to messenger RNA, I think it's kind of important to understand how viruses replicate to begin with. So if we step back and speak about that subject, when a virus enters a host, the way that it actually makes more of itself is it hijacks a host cell's own uh, mechanical activity. So it'll actually inject its own genetic data, and that genetic data then is replicated 
to subsequently produce proteins and other structural elements that are necessary for a virus to reproduce. So what we're really doing with messenger RNA vaccines is we're taking just one small segment of that and going through the same thing that viruses already do. Another thing to kind of keep in mind is when a messenger RNA um, is actually released in a cell, it doesn't travel into the nucleus where DNA is housed. It's also important to recognize that it doesn't cross into the mitochondria, which has its own genetic data. So, so the likelihood of it influencing any kind of genes is very, very, very minimal. Great. That's helpful. Thank you. So far, when you look at the clinical trial data, the phase three trials of these vaccine candidates have not been published yet. Um, but as part of this process, normally we would do peer review of the results, and this is considered an important part of that research process to validate the data. So with the potential emergency use authorization of these two first vaccine candidates, does the rapid development cycle, testing, and emergency approval of these novel vaccines bypass any of the ethical guideposts that are in place to protect research subjects and ultimately the public as part of the research process? Dr. Sullivan, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, of course, that's the concern, isn't it? And ever since uh, we entered this difficult situation, uh, it was really last January and February that we entered this current pandemic with uh, COVID-19. And the White House soon thereafter uh, launched Operation Warp Speed. And uh, that we're seeing the fruit of that rapid deployment of the research. Um, first with phase one and two trials, uh, and now in phase three. So um, it, is, um, it is clear that we already have had uh, safety in phase one uh, being studied. We know in phase two, we have a, a limited understanding of the efficacy of the vaccines. And finally, in phase three, we enter large numbers. Um, uh, for example, the Pfizer study has 44,000 participants in it. And um, these are the gold standard of, uh, of clinical studies, which are known as double-blind placebo-controlled studies, which means that one group is the control. They simply get a saline injection. Um, in this particular case with this vaccine, uh, it's two shots, three weeks apart. And then the other group gets the experimental vaccine. And um, neither the, the volunteer subjects nor the, the, the physicians and researchers that are administering the injections know who gets what. So there's an experimental and a control group. Um, and, and the concern is that we're doing this so fast that we're somehow cutting ethical corners. And that is not the case. Uh, to quote from Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, uh, fast does not mean cutting corners. All of the normal steps to protect every phase of the process have been undertaken. It's just that they've cut through all of the administrative red tape so that all of this can proceed more expeditiously in a process that would normally take years. And now we have the most rapid deployment of a vaccine and vaccines uh, that we've ever had in our history. But that does not mean that it's unsafe. Um, at this point, there are statisticians who do see all of the data and know who got what. They have been able to reach a conclusion that there is, yes, at least with the, the two front runners, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, 
and, and, and also with the AstraZeneca and the Johnson Johnson vaccines, which we may talk about later. Um, there's enough evidence to show that indeed there is a statistically significant difference of the, um, the vaccine, the actual vaccine re recipients versus the control, such that very, very few vaccine recipients have gotten COVID-19 and the, over, the overwhelming majority of cases are in the control group. And this stands up and gives ethical warrant to now announce that the vaccine is effective and we can go ahead and start to break the code and uh, to actually deliver the vaccine if the A give its approval in uh, just a few days. Um, one more comment from an ethics perspective. It's worth noting that um, those who have participated in these studies um, should be encouraged that even if they're in the control group, proper ethics says that uh, those subjects who received only saline will actually be early to receive the actual vaccine eventually. And um, that's of particular interest to me personally, because I myself am a volunteer for the Pfizer uh, vaccine study. And uh, so I've received two injections. I don't know what I got, but um, I am encouraged to know that there's a good chance that I'll be an early recipient of the actual vaccine if I am currently in the control group. Dr. Solomon, thank you so much for those thoughts. That's super helpful. Um, so kind of riffing off that, a recent concern that I've seen in social media and I've actually been asked about personally is that COVID-19 vaccine may lead to infertility particularly in female patients. So Dr. Jenkins, let me turn back to you. What can you tell us about this? You know, I've seen, I've seen this uh, same claim hit a lot of social media venues. It's actually starting to make its way to the general public right now. So, so this goes back to this, this theory that this spike protein that we're targeting with this COVID-19 vaccine is actually similar to a protein called syncytin-1 that is pre present in humans. Specifically, it's involved with uh, the placenta attaching to the wall in, in a womb. And so I think the thing that's really important to underscore there is the differences between these structures. There's only about three amino acids, and amino acids, of course, are, pro are pieces of proteins, right? Only about three am amino acids in one sequence that's similar between these two different items. And so the likelihood that your, your body would develop an, an immune response to that, that protein that you're already creating is actually very minimal. And there, there's some other things that people brought up about how it's a fusion protein and so that could also, you know, cause some kind of, we'll call it cross-reactivity here. And, and in reality, that, that can't really be the case because when you look at the flu vaccine, it operates on a very similar principle. And we've not seen any kind of infertility associated with that. So I think one thing I want to take a step back and mention is when you look at this big conversation, there's all sorts of concerns being raised about safety and certainly um, long-term efficacy in those types of discussions. It is in your government's best interest, as well as the general public's best interest for us to get this right. If we make a mistake with this, the likelihood of someone getting a vaccine down the road is minimal. I mean, one slip up and no one will ever pursue this vaccine, period. So I, I think it makes so much sense to take a step back and put all these claims that you're hearing in context with that idea. All right. Well, I think that helps us launch into um, a couple of other questions. So 
there have been a number of ethical concerns besides the ones that we've already raised that have been asked in relation to COVID-19 vaccine candidates. So, Rachel, let me turn to you. Can you give us a feel for some of those ethical concerns that um, that are out there about the vaccine? Yeah, of course, Dr. Cole. Um, a major one that a lot of people have been having and I've been hearing about are about the cell lines used in the creation of these vaccines. Are they ethical and that type of thing? Another one that I've also heard a lot of is that um, about the distribution of the vaccines and who's actually going to end up receiving these vaccines, who's first, who's last, that whole ordeal. And then another major one that a lot of people I think are having are whether or not these vaccines are going to be mandatory and are they required and can they be required? Great. So thanks for outlining these for us, Rachel. Um, I want to dive into each one of these in particular. So let's take some time to talk through them at a more granular level. Um, so first, as you mentioned, there are concerns about the potential use of specifically fetal tissue that's been derived from aborted babies in the development and production of some of the COVID-19 vaccine candidates. So Dr. Sullivan, can you give us some background about this specific concern? Yes, allow me to give a brief introduction here, and I'll elaborate in greater detail uh, a little bit later. So in the context of vaccines, there's there's a bit of history here. Um, the issues come up with the use of fetal tissue that has been used to develop uh, cell cultures. So um, presumably at some time in the past, a woman has had an abortion and the, the tissue that was taken from her uterus uh, in the performance of the abortion was then donated for research and study. And from that tissue, various vaccines were made. Uh, one of the historically important examples of that is the um, rubella vaccine, which um, going back to 1969 and Plotkin and Associates, where um, uh, aborted fetal tissue was used in cell culture to develop this vaccine. The initial culture for actually growing a virus was used uh, to develop the vaccine. Even though that is not the current source for the rubella vaccine that's found in MMR, that was the historical example that caused ethical conservatives to raise objections. Uh, they felt that this was somehow tainted. And I'll comment more about this in a little bit. Excellent. So uh, when we think about the current vaccine candidates for COVID-19, Dr. Jenkins, do any of the um, vaccines use these cell lines in their development? So I think when we think about our front runners, um, we've we've discussed Pfizer, Moderna. I know that the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine were all mentioned as well. Um, when it comes to the two ones that are most likely to receive approval, those messenger RNA based vaccines, um, those two. So the Pfizer Moderna did not utilize any of these cell lines in their development. The proof of concept regarding messenger RNA technology did use this historically, but these specific vaccines did not actually use any cell line in their development. When it comes to the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson one, those are a little bit more questionable with uh, how they've actually utilized um, fetal cell tissue. Okay, so Dr. Sullivan, with that information in mind, can you help us to think through the moral and ethical implications of the use of these cell lines in COVID-19 vaccine development? Of course, and, and here allow me to um, um, put on my hat as a, as a moral philosopher and talk a little bit about the idea of moral complicity. The idea here is that if we use, uh, for, for any type of medical treatment, uh, be it a vaccine or be it a medicine of some kind, if it's, it's, if it's put together on the back of abortion, 
then um, ethical conservatives, usually people of the religious faith, will object and say that that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, accomplishing a good goal uh, by a very bad means. And the idea is that somehow it is tainted, that it is evil at its source. And this gets us to the idea of moral complicity, or as the Roman Catholic tradition would say, uh, uh, cooperation with evil. And just a brief definition is helpful here. Moral complicity refers to the possible taint of moral guilt attached to a person by that person being associated with something that was morally wrong. So if we want to give an example from law, um, if you commit a crime, say a bank robbery, and um, uh, a bank teller is killed during the commission of that crime, it doesn't matter whether you pull the trigger on the gun or if you drove the getaway car. You're just as complicit with that evil deed as uh, the person who, who, who did the actual killing. And presumably you would face similar penalties, uh, such as life imprisonment, imprisonment or uh, the death penalty. And so there's this issue of complicity, even if you didn't actually do the deed. And so that's what comes up with regard to um, these sources, uh, these sources of, of, uh, of vaccine. So the problem is that um, just as we saw with the uh, rubella vaccine and now with um, uh, many of these uh, current vaccines for COVID-19, um, the sources that might have been used really came from two different sources. One was the HEK-293 line. These are kidney cells that were originally from a fetus, a single fetus aborted in 1972. And the PERC-6 line, retinal cells uh, from the back of the eye from a fetus aborted in 1985. Um, therefore, conservatives would say we shouldn't use these because you're being complicit and somehow you're involved with that original act. Um, if you're a religious person, you consider that immoral. However, vaccine users, that is physicians and their patients and, and those who give the injections, are removed from that original act. The intent of these end users has nothing to do particularly with abortion. They were part of that initial decision. And we have this kind of um, instinctual idea. Our, our moral conscience seems to give us this common sense idea that the passage of time reduces our complicity as we go forward. Um, one writer from the 1980s by the name of James Burchell um, interestingly called it a moral autoclave, that the passage of time sterilizes the act. So the farther ago it was, the longer time has passed, the less complicit we are. Um, not everyone is going to be convinced of that argument, but um, we're, we're going to need to make a case, not just from the supposed evil of the abortion, but also the greater good now. Can we accomplish the goal of helping the most people now with the vaccine that we have available to us? And that's a greater good argument that many of us, myself included, would say supersedes that supposed moral taint. I hope that's helpful. Incredibly helpful. Thank you. So, uh, Dr. Jenkins, really quickly, uh, just to bring clarity, you mentioned that not all of the vaccine candidates use this technology, right? So for those who, for whom this is a deep moral ethical concern, um, like among many Christian evangelicals, um, 
there will, will there potentially be options for vaccines? So, so in the long term, there will potentially be options for vaccines. Right now, of the ones that are the forerunners, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are the least likely ones to, I think, uh, cause a, a ca- cause some concern with with conscience here. So, those would be the ones. I mean, personally, that I would support here, simply because, um, you know, as, as Dr. Sullivan alluded to, we are not necessarily supporting that original deed that did happen but rather the technology that made these things came from that. Just because we use those today does not mean we support those original actions. Okay, so shifting gears a little bit to another ethical question. This is in regard to the distribution of the vaccine. One of the key tenets of traditional medical ethics is this idea of distributive justice. Uh, This idea is primarily concerned with the apportionment of limited resources, in this case, like healthcare or a vaccine, in concert with the interest of both the individual and society's best interest. So, Dr. Sullivan, can you talk a bit about the ethical underpinnings of distribution of something like a vaccine? Well, of course. Um, We do need to acknowledge that um, we, we want to be fair and equitable in the distribution of a potentially life-preserving or life-saving treatment. And this brings us to one of the core ethical principles, and that is distributive justice. This is the equal apportioning, the equal distribution to every member of the moral community, the benefits of our treatment. Uh, And so we have this principle of utility that comes from that. Um, And it actually comes from an ethical theory called utilitarianism, which um, says that we should do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And so we have to have a balance between um, helping those who are most valuable versus helping those who are most helpful. Now, it may sound a little puzzling, so let me just give an illustration. Imagine that we're at war, which we're not. But imagine if we were having a, 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 an actual combat, there would be a high priority to treat the gravely wounded, but there would also be a high priority for treating those who are most likely to get back into the battle and help us win. And so who do we treat first in a war situation? And, and it goes way beyond our purposes to talk about triage, but the idea here is that we have to find a balance between those who desperately need um, this particular treatment, uh, our, our medical care for injuries, versus getting soldiers back on the field so that they can uh, successfully fight the battle. And so that's going to be the tension as we try to ethically apportion this vaccine. Uh, do we give it first to those at highest risk? I know Dr. Jensen, Jenkins is going to comment on that. Or do we give it first to first responders? And that is, that's going to be the interesting ethical question. Okay, so perfect setup for you, Dr. Jenkins. So tell us, in light of these ideas, who should get the vaccine first and what has the CDC and, and some of our other um, organizations recommended to this point? So I think it's worth mentioning how this distribution is going to take place before I, I kind of dive into some of the specifics. So first off, once a vaccine is approved, what the federal government will do is actually organize the distribution to states. Then it's up to the states to determine how they want to apportion that particular vaccine to the general populace. 
and each state has the ability to define what that looks like. So, you know, in Ohio here, for example, we've identified 10 different hospitals that will serve as vaccine distribution centers. And that's been based on geography, on risks, on, on some of the community issues that are involved there. And there are a lot of things that went into that, including the need for cold storage, which uh, is kind of unique to this Pfizer vaccine that's probably going to be approved here. Um, so, so then from, from that point on, those individual centers make a decision based, based on risk to administer those different vaccines. So taking a step back, the CDC has outlined some general recommendations that they encourage states to follow. And the states, for the most part, are trying to match things up with the understanding that their, their own infrastructure is a little bit different on a state-to-state basis. So for phase one, the recommendation right now is to put healthcare workers and the people that are at the highest risk in line first, as well as first responders. So, um, you know, Dr. Sullivan brought up the fact that we make it into a debate of it, if, should it be the highest risk person or the first responder? And I, I think here in that phase one, they highlight all those. But the question becomes, with limited vaccine supplies hitting in waves, who gets it first in phase one? So there's a saying in medicine that kind of goes like this. It's an old one. It goes, doctor, feed thyself. Okay, and, and the why I bring that up here is if we lose our medical personnel, then the ability to care for these different people drops dramatically. And so to that end, what's going to likely happen first is those healthcare workers working at the bedside or in close proximity to these COVID patients will be getting that first vaccine. First responders will likely get that vaccine too because when they're responding to an emergency situation, they don't know whether these individuals have COVID up front or not. So, th- so there's a high likelihood they'll encounter this disease. And so when we talk about all these things, those will likely be the people that get the vaccine first, followed by all those people that fall into those high-risk categories like those of older ages, those with lots of different uh, pre-existing medical conditions that put them at a higher risk of complications from COVID. Okay, great. So want to shift gears a little bit. I'm going to turn back to Rachel here. So Another ethical concept that's important to understand is this idea of autonomy. So uh, right now, I think we could argue that the majority of Americans are hesitant to accept the vaccine. And I think that's in part because our culture puts a high value on individual choice. So Rachel, tell us a little bit more about this idea from an ethics perspective of autonomy and what that means for healthcare. Yeah, sure, Dr. Cole. So autonomy um, comes from this Greek word that means self-rule. And so basically what this means in healthcare and stuff like that is that people have the right to make up their own minds about their health care and what decisions they want to make related to that. And this has become one of the most um, important and really prominent things that we look at when it comes to ethics, especially in American culture. However, as both Jenkins and Sullivan alluded to earlier, there are other things that we need to consider when it comes to healthcare ethics, there's three other pillars, beneficence, you know, best patient, best interest of the patient, non-maleficence, doing no harm, and then the distributive justice they were talking about earlier. And so a lot of times when we're looking at healthcare and autonomy and ethics, um, those three other pillars kind of get ignored or get overlooked by a lot of people when, even though we are trying to consider these things. So your ability to choose um, can't be taken lightly because you enacting your autonomy cannot step on or infringe on other people's autonomy and well-being. So we as like healthcare and just in general, um, we're trying to find the balance between an individual's choice and protecting the health and well-being of everyone. And that is why we're having a lot of these debates. Okay, that's super helpful. Thank you, Rachel. So in relation to that, I've seen a lot of traffic on social media about vaccine cards. So 
Dr. Jenkins, what's the deal with vaccine cards? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, so basically what happened, to give everyone a backdrop, if you aren't familiar with this, is there were some images released by the Health and Human Services Department of these pieces of cardstock that said vaccination record when it came to COVID-19. So these went around on social media and people immediately jumped to this conclusion that that meant the federal government was going to track you personally and all of your decisions related to this. Really what this card exists for is nothing to do with that. This is actually a piece of paper that you take with you and potentially as we think about how this vaccine is being released in waves, you may have to bring that proof of vaccination to get your second dose. Most of these candidates that, that are being put forth require two doses. So what that means is if, if you get a, the vaccine in one site and all of a sudden they don't have it and you have to go somewhere else for your second dose, this would follow you. And the other thing to keep in mind, too, is we have a lot of vaccine candidates that may be releasing simultaneously or within a short period of each other. And so as this starts to flood the market, if you go to one location, you want to make sure that that second dose you would get is the same vaccine. Because we have no data to suggest that if we combine vaccines, you can have the same kind of effect at this point. So you'll bring that kind of record with you. Um, Just like contract tracing, which has gotten brought up quite a bit when it comes to these discussions of autonomy, this is a decision. If you want to share any personal information with the government, it's a decision you have to physically opt into. You have to provide assent for them to take that information from you. To give everyone history, um, when it comes to medical approvals of different devices, of products, we track safety and efficacy and have for decades. And the government collects that information anonymously as it gets reported by different medical providers. So this is already happening, that structure's there. Remdesivir, one of the new antivirals that was just approved to deal with COVID, we've been tracking safety data on that since it's been approved. It's always anonymous. It's not drilled down to you and who you are and your social security number. Rather, it's more general characteristics about you in aggregate. They look at all those things in aggregate. And so from that data, that lets them track long-term trends. And why that's kind of a big important thing to think about um, with these discussions of autonomy, if you opt in, to these different things. And I know Pfizer has already said they're going to be monitoring for 30, um, or excuse me, for uh, 30 weeks, I think is what they said, following the administration of the vaccine. If you opt in to provide data to them, um, what that allows them to do then is to track these big picture trends to look for safety and efficacy outcomes that maybe we didn't observe in some of these shorter term trials. So I think as we think about the big picture, if we want to make sure we're doing the best we can for people with these vaccines, it's really important to consider um, the possibility of that willingness to share that information. So Dr. Jenkins, to follow up, is it fair to say that the information on those cards belongs to the individual that holds the card and not the government? Absolutely. So the intent is there's no, to my knowledge, there's no photocopy or anything like this. This would go with that individual. I should add too that, um, Alex Azar, who's currently in charge of the Health and Human Services Department, is directly um, appointed by the Trump administration. And I know people that are concerned about autonomy, particularly when it comes to COVID, are, are worried about what that means. And, and you know, typically they sit on, on the side of the aisle as uh, President Trump supporters. So I want to bring that up just to kind of add that little, I guess, extra assurance to people. Okay, so in light of this, I think the biggest question when it relates to autonomy or the choice of an individual is whether or not we are going to have a choice to get the vaccine. So uh, let me turn to Dr. Sullivan first. So should this vaccine be mandatory and do you think it will be in any settings? Well, that's a that's a perfect question to ask an ethicist. And uh, my my dodgy answer is 
Uh, yes and no. So, um, in theory, we should have the most freedom to choose whether or not we receive any medical treatment. After all, Rachel talked about autonomy, and that is one of the four principles of of uh, medical ethics that we all that we all have to live by. Uh, but if you think about the the crisis that we're having now and the high infectivity of the virus. Uh, there is a strong desire to have the maximal number of people vaccinated so we can get above 70% of the population and maybe accomplish that elusive goal that some have called herd immunity so that the actual crisis of the pandemic can can go away and we can back to to we can go back to some kind of a new normal in our society um, so it makes sense to me as a healthcare professional that certain frontline individuals should be required to have the vaccine. Um, I don't think this should be a government mandate, but uh, certainly in Ohio, Governor DeWine has not said that the vaccine should be mandatory. Um, But on the other hand, I think individual hospitals as private entities have the right to say that, say, ER doctors should have the vaccine to best protect uh, their patients. I think another group that should be um, vaccinated would be the military. Uh, it makes sense to require a vaccine for the military because of their involvement in, in um, many of these kinds of, of protections and crises. Um, it's, it's, it's worth noting that if you try to go beyond that, especially from, from uh, government, uh, people are going to push back a lot. And right now we have enough people that are are not sure they're willing to get the vaccine. And so we don't want to have any more pushback than that. I think on the general level, we should leave it to be voluntary. But I think we should do everything in our power to educate the public about the safety and efficacy of these vaccines so that they choose to get them. After all, that's what this podcast is all about. Thanks, Dr. Sullivan. Dr. Jenkins, what say you on this topic? You know, I am uh, very inclined to agree with Dr. Sullivan. I am personally not in favor of mandatory widespread vaccinations um, because I think those kinds of blanket policies don't do well to drive public confidence. Um, and, and just to kind of add to this, there we have we have two different camps of people that are really kind of against many um, of these vaccines. So you have the camp that doesn't believe in the science behind vaccines, which which I can understand if you fall into that camp. And there's another camp of people that are hesitant about this vaccine because of the speed it was developed, because of politics, you name it. Um, there's a lot, lot of people that maybe fall into that camp too. And, and so I think one of the most egregious issues that we've seen with COVID-19 has been the suppression of alternative viewpoints. And all that does, in my honest opinion, is it only fuels the further distribution and further um, growth of those viewpoints that may be incorrect at times. So that when you censor those voices out, they just get louder and and worse. So the only way to fight information that you don't necessarily think is correct is with information. Um, And I really think when we think about what a vaccine mandate might mean, all those people that have those alternative viewpoints, even if the science is good, even if all the data supports this vaccine, the moment you try to silence those people is when they push back hard and your ability to sell this and impact the public good diminishes significantly. Well, I think those are excellent comments. And it just reminds me of the fact that we as people don't make decisions based on information solely. 
we make decisions based on our beliefs about that information. And that's where worldview comes into play so prominently here. If we believe a particular thing about this vaccine and we simply receive information that's contrary to it, especially if it's not done in a way that is respectful and demonstrates care for others, we're only going to more vehemently oppose one another. And so I I love your comments about finding a place to dialogue about this well, loving others around us in in that dialogue, and um, allowing people to make decisions for themselves based on the information that's given and a conversation that shows care for them. So that's excellent. Um, so I, I want to close close this uh, podcast episode up with just simply asking if our panelists have any closing thoughts today. So, Dr. Sullivan, can I turn to you first? What closing thoughts do you have for us? Yes, yeah, so it, it's important to comment because some of the ethical concerns have come from people of faith. So, yes, I'd like to make a comment from my particular faith perspective because I'm a member of the Christian Medical and Dental Association, the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, and also I'm closely associated with the National Catholic Bioethics Center. And these are all three faith-based organizations um, that share a, a common Christian heritage. And so some of the things we've talked about today from the point of view of moral complicity with um, fetal tissue use and the idea of, of, of having uh, regard for our neighbor and for loving others as we love ourselves uh, come from uh, this wonderful Christian tradition that we hold in common. And I will simply tell you that uh, the Christian Medical and Dental Association, the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, and the National Catholic Bioethics Center all have endorsed these vaccines. Um, Even though, especially in the case of of the Roman Catholic group, there are some residual concerns about the source of some of the vaccines, the greater good argument and the idea of doing the best for our neighbor uh, really prevails here. And so um, you can be sure that uh, the overwhelming majority of Christians of faith, uh, Christians who are serious about their faith um, would endorse this vaccine. Great. Dr. Jenkins, uh, any closing comments? You know, I think I would just say, um, in case I I wasn't transparent enough earlier, I understand people with alternative viewpoints and I don't necessarily look down on them in any way. Um, So I hope that's pretty clear with with the comments that I've made. Um, But the one thing I want to add to this discussion when it comes from, from my faith perspective is there's a lot of voices and there's a lot of fear. And very often what I have seen um, is people accusing the other group of fear. And it happens so much on both sides that people don't realize by doing that consistently and jumping at every shadow, they are actually exhibiting the same kinds of fear, just on the opposite side. Um, And really when we look at the biblical account, what we are commanded to do time and time again is to not be anxious, to not be afraid. Because when we let fear drive our actions, that really kind of divides us from God and where we need to be. So the best thing I can do is share with everyone a a passage from the Bible. This is actually uh, my favorite passage. It's in the book of James in chapter 3. It contrasts earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. And so essentially what it paints the picture of um, with earthly wisdom is that um, really the only author of division is the enemy. And so when we feel ourselves jumping at every shadow or attacking people, regardless of what opinion you hold, you're already losing 
But what James 3.17 basically says is, but the wisdom that comes from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And so as I, I learned a long time ago when I was in youth group and I first heard this passage, this is almost like a spiritual litmus test. If you run every thought that you have by this or, or advice you're getting from other people or information you're getting from other people and it doesn't match up to that, the wisdom is not coming from above. And I think that's so important to consider with these discussions because of how emotional um, and how difficult they can be at times. You know, as Christians, we're commanded to love one another regardless of what everyone's stance is on everything. And I think the place where we start with that is by looking at the biblical account. And I look at James 3.17 as being evidence of that. Well, I am so thankful for all of you joining us on the podcast today. So Rachel, Dr. Jenkins, Dr. Sullivan, thank you so much for lending lending us your time and your expertise today. This has been incredibly helpful. Certainly been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for letting us be here. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of Disrupt, a podcast from the Center for Pharmacy Innovation. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and share the podcast with others. Join us for our next episode of Disrupt, during which we will discuss the topic of pharmacogenomics.